I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. Folks, these are, these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reformanda Radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right. Thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us. My name is Tim. This is Semper Reformanda Radio. Uh, we have with us today, well, myself uh, and Carlos Montijo, our other co-host, is in the house. And just to remind everybody, we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. I believe uh, there's 10 other podcasts on there, so definitely check them out. I've been saying this every week, guys. Uh, create a profile on the website and then join our group. Or join whatever podcast group you like, and you will receive email notifications with all the stuff that they do. And with that, I really want to jump into what we've got going on this week. I'm really excited about this. I know a number of other people out there are probably excited about this as well because they've been asking me to do this for, uh, I don't know, a couple of months probably, if I, if I remember correctly. And uh, we have with us Doug Duma, who is the author of my one of my new favorite books, The Presbyterian Philosopher, the authorized biography of Gordon H. Clark. So let me let me give uh, Carlos an opportunity to say hello. Let me give Doug an opportunity to say hello. Uh, Doug, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? From what I understand, I think that you recently got married and you recently graduated from seminary. Is that right? Two big life events that happened? Yeah, both of those are correct. I got married in October. Wife Priscilla is here listening to me call her beautiful. And um, <laughs> I, and and you know what we have we have this recorded, so you, she can play it back. <laughs> all right. And um, I graduated from seminary this past August at uh, Sangre de Cristo Seminary, which is a reformed school, despite its Spanish name. We are not a Catholic school. And it's a reform school in um, southern Colorado, um, started actually in 1976 by Gordon Clark's son-in-law, uh, Dwight Zeller. And so it was uh, quite interesting there to work with the family of Gordon Clark, his daughter there as well, and to have access to his um, personal papers and to get um, family information and stories, which um, did find their way into itself. Awesome. Uh, well, Carlos, um, 
I'm really glad that you're here today because I know that you uh, you understand Clark, I think, a lot better than I do. Carlos is actually the one who introduced me to Clark when I was a hardcore Ventilian Bonsonite guy. I remember back in the day, Carlos and I used to uh, kind of butt heads because at the time, the church that we were going to, we were the only two guys that really had studied up on presuppositionalists. And, uh, and I was pretty dogmatic about my presuppositionalism. And uh, I remember Carlos and I used to used to butt heads a little bit. And then he introduced me to the Trinity Foundation. He introduced me to uh, to Gordon Clark. And from there, I started reading uh, Clark for myself. And, and one of the things that I had found was that I think a lot of the the stuff that was out there about Clark was a lot of misinformation and a lot of people didn't understand his point of view. And a lot of people had uh, what I would say were little, little snippets of talking points that they, they would just spout off without really even understanding uh, the, the whole controversy and everything that happened. And once, once I started reading uh, all, all the stuff, the, the backstory, it really made me take a, a closer look at, at Clark himself and, and what he contributed to the Christian faith. And so that's, that's really what, what I'm hoping that our listeners will get out of this episode is to really give Clark a chance. Um, you know, uh, I, I, we are going to point out that there's a lot of misinformation, but Doug, uh, as I said before, your book is one of my favorite books, and uh, I've actually read I've read it all once, parts of it twice, and I'm probably going to finish it again and read it a third time because there's even some sections in here that I think just went over my head. So I'm going <laughs> well, to have to go for what it. What I would recommend, um, what I would recommend to to you and to other readers is is to read the footnotes because there's a lot of um, side stories or extra information in there that just didn't fit into the narrative itself of the book. So, um, yeah, you know, read everything. Yeah. I, I'm, (laughs) I'm with you on that, man. Read footnotes. Footnotes are insightful. And and as a matter of fact, it's funny because I actually even have, uh, some footnotes highlighted. Um, because yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty big on that, but, um, let me, let me do this. So, there's there's been a lot of talk about your book, and I want to quote some some uh, people talking about your book because I think it's important to to point this out. So the the first quote I have is by Sean Garrity, and he's a published author on the Trinity Foundation, and he writes uh, he wrote this back in February uh, February twentieth, and this this really got me excited about the book. He says I'm about two thirds through Doug's book, and I have to say that he has done a masterful job must read. The section on the Clark Ventile controversy and its fallout was excellent and corrects the record regarding some of the fairy tales that have come out of the, out of the Ventile camp over the years. I have to think that he's going to take some heat over this, which you, you might, <laughs> but uh, I think the, the work speaks for itself. He goes on to say, Clark and his supporters were were treated sinfully, and they continue to be treated that way. See the OPC's treatment of the late Robert Raymond in trying to block his transfer. Anyway, uh, if anyone hasn't ordered a copy yet, I encourage you to do so. You won't regret it. And so there's a, I, I mean, I think I think uh, Sean Sean is is really hitting on something that's true, and 
that a lot of people don't understand the, the Clark Van Teel controversy. And there's a lot of misinformation. And I, I really second what he says. I, I think that your book is going to correct a lot of those, those misunderstandings, a lot of that false information. And I have another quote here. Carlos, uh, I'm not really sure who this, this uh, quote was by, the one that you sent me. Do you, do you know who this quote yeah, was that's, by? Yeah, that's one. That, that's a quote that um, I got from a former Westminster uh, Theological Seminary student who had okay. read my book. I, th I believe he's been a minister for some years, and um, we kept it anonymous because he basically to be anonymous. Well, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a quote from someone um, had heard at least parts of this story back in the day. I think he was a seminary student in the 1970s or 80s at Westminster. Yeah, and, and because, yeah, he, he might take some heat for this. But let me read his quote. He says, I'm almost finished with the Kindle version of your book. I am dumbstruck. I am so grateful for your having written this and in bringing to light the real story of Dr. Clark's treatment and the powers at play in his OPC Philly Pres Presbytery experience. I have long wanted to know the whole story. As a student at Westminster Theological Seminary some years ago, I had conversations about the case with a few surviving members of the Presbytery who were opposed to Dr. Clark. I never imagined what was really going on in the Clark case. It was shameful the way Clark was treated. And as a graduate, I am saddened at complicity of some of the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary at the time, end quote. And so, you know, obviously this person wanted to, to remain anonymous, but that, I think that really speaks for itself. And so, Carlos, you pulled up some quotes about Gordon Clark just to illustrate what these guys are talking about. Um, so I'll let, you, uh, I'll let you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. And before I jump right in here, um, Doug, congratulations, congratulations, and congratulations on your marriage, your graduation, and your awesome book. Um, sadly, I have not been able to read it all yet. I've been like reading pictures of it from Tim's phone. Uh, and But I thank you for sending me a copy. We are also planning to review it on the Bible Thumping Wingnut website, so we are going to do a review of it um, once I get to finish reading it. Um, but I, and I really hope you can come back on the show with us again and again because we I just I have so much that I want to talk about with you guys um, about the book and I know we could do an entire episode on just on like each of the topics that we're going to try to, to cover but um, another thing that I want our listeners to keep in mind is that this show is definitional for us because Gordon Clark is a an extremely important part of who we are as Semper from on the radio. Um, uh, with Tim and I, uh, when we met and we started to get to know each other, um, I actually first read, uh, this, this is a funny story because when the way I found out about Gordon Clark was because I was looking, I was a poor college student looking for scholarship money. And I was looking online for a, uh, for scholarships and I found the Christian worldview essay contest. And so, um, that's what drew me at first to the to the to the Trinity Foundation. It was basically a monetary um, incentive there, and um, the first, it was on 2009 when they were doing the competition or the contest on God's Hammer, which is a compilation of essays by uh, by Gordon Clark about the inspiration, the authority, the reliability of the Bible, and things like that. And um, I fell in love with the book when I read it. It, it just like it completely turned my my 
Christianity upside down and it just it changed so much of the way that I see uh, understand the Bible and it has helped me grow the Trinity Foundation Gordon Clark has helped me grow uh, probably the, one of the ministries that has most helped me to grow in my understanding as a Christian and, and equip me and so um, that being and and what Tim was talking about with respect to us going back and forth it actually it's funny because it actually wasn't that hard to convince him that Gordon Clark's uh, method and theology was far superior than Bonson's or Van Teel's or anybody of the other guys just because uh, Clark was just so his 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 thought and his theology and his philosophy is so cogent is so clear and it's so biblical that really it's it you once you actually read Clark and you get to uh, taste uh, some of the, uh, his words it's really not very difficult to see um, how much how how brilliant he was and how absolutely uh, biblical and, and clear and systematic he was so talking about um, you know there's a long history of Vantillians um, misrepresenting the Clark case and misrepresenting Gordon Clark um, originating in large part with Vantil himself and Doug I know in your book you cover that a lot and uh, but I wanted to mention I was looking through this in preparation for the interview I was so excited that I started to like reread and read a bunch of uh, source material I reread the complaint against Clark and the answer to the complaint and um, also was reading some uh, some other secondary sources that were discussing the matter and uh, so I read I stumbled in this was a few years ago when I stumbled across this article by DG Hart um, it's called after the breakup heartbreak conservative Presbyterians without a common foe and this was written in 2008 and I think it, it's from the Journal of Presbyterian history so on page 67 he says this um, about the the Clark Van Til controversy. He says, at the contested General Assemblies of 1945, 1946, and 1947, the subject of the dispute over Clark was a knowledge of God and secondarily, ordination procedures. But the subtext was the denomination's identity. When the last votes were, tail were, were tallied in 1947, the LPC repudiated Clark's understanding of the knowledge of God, rejected his candidacy for the office of minister, and stood by the faculty at Westminster. But these decisions came with a cost. Clark took a post at Butler University and transferred his membership to the United Presbyterian Church of North America. Meanwhile, ministers such as Strong sought calls in the Presbyterian Church in the United States, PCUS, while some con congregations left the OPC for the Bible Presbyterian Synod. So, Doug, why don't you enlighten us and tell us, is this, is this accurate, what he said here? This is, this is supposed to be like the OPC church historian. You know, he's written a bunch of books on, on the history of the OPC and stuff. So, I mean... Did he get it right there, or I mean, it's just basic factual uh, statements, right? Um, yeah, I DG Hart um, teaches up at Hillsdale, I believe, and I quite respect his work. I have his um, book on Machen, and a couple of his books, and seen some of his writings. I don't really know uh, what's going on with um, with some of the things he's saying there. Um, there's a number of issues. Now, the first one. Part of what he's saying, the first one being that um, in 47, that say Clark's views were repudiated or um, you know somehow gone against in the OPC. So there were study committees or reports in the church. And in a number of cases, these were opposed to Clark. They were never made official documents of the church, but I suppose I could go with him. But the, the next um, statement about Gordon Clark's ordination being, it wasn't, he didn't use the word revoked. I forget what word you 
uh, had their uh, understanding. He said, yeah, he said, they repudiated Clark's understanding of the knowledge of God, rejected his candidacy for the office of minister, and stood by the faculty at Westminster. Yeah, that, that second one there is, um, I'm not sure where he's getting that, because that's that's not true. I mean, in, in, in 1944, he was ordained. So the complaint came after his ordination. So he wasn't he wasn't even a candidate. So he wasn't rejecting his candidates candidacy. He was already an huh. ordained minister as right. of um, 1944. And so as the as the controversy plays out, it's it's a complaint against Clark's views and trying to sort of overturn that ordination, perhaps if if things were to go strongly against Clark. But in fact, they did not, and the votes never went against Clark. Um, for a number of years, the votes were, in some cases, within the Presbytery of Philadelphia Presbytery, in some cases within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church General Assembly. Sometimes the votes were like, like perfect ties, and they were just, you know, they'd have these stalemate conditions, um, and things weren't clearing up. But in no case was there ever a vote in which uh, Clark was in the minority on these. And, and finally, at the end, um, Edmund Clowney, who's was a student at Westminster Seminary and later, much later after the Clark controversy becomes the president at Westminster Seminary, he actually leads this, the study committees and ultimately um, brings a report out and he takes the majority, I believe it's a three to two sort of decision, which is favorable to um, Clark uh, continuing his you know, position as an ordained minister. So yeah, he, Clark's ordination is certainly never revoked uh, never rescinded. And Clark leaves in 47, or Clark leaves in 48, because he's just kind of frustrated with all the all the situations going on in the OPC. And he says, I think I can, you know, more effectively bring the gospel to people in other connections. And he joins the United Presbyterian Church. But it, but the mention there of 47 in, in Butler is, is odd to me, because Clark actually took the job 1945, um, <laughs> while an ordained minister, while in great standing in the OPC, the, the complaint had arisen um, a few months prior. I think the, the answer to the complaint um, had sent back in with um, some help from his um, supporters in the Philadelphia Presbytery. That was, you know, that was in the court. But uh, the, when Clark took the job at Butler, there wasn't any Tim to leave the OPC or anything. He wasn't taking the job because he was trying to get out of the OPC. He was taking the job because he needed a job. He had been, yeah. you know, he had been out of work ever since he had left um, Wheaton College, where he had some run-ins with the faculty, or run-ins with the administration <laughs> in there. So right. you can see in the biography how it's connected together. The Wheaton affair sort of leads to the ordination controversy within the OPC. But yeah, those um, the, the series of errors there by D.G. Hart are um, unexplain, unexplainable to me. Um, I didn't mention those in the biography. I mentioned a similar error by um, one of the, I believe there's two or three Van Til biographies. William White wrote one of them. And White says something similar that, you know, Clark lost his case, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's just like, I don't know where he's getting this. I, I think I am I call white wishful thinking or something. Yeah, yeah, that's funny because I think the problem is that these guys um, aren't reading the, the sources for themselves. I think they're getting this uh, from secondhand sources, uh, Vantillian sources specifically, because, and this is nothing new, you know, John Robbins uh, also wrote, uh, and he wrote a little pamphlet called Can the Orthodox Presbyterian Church Be Saved? 
And he also, he criticizes numerous uh, misrepresentations of Clark from the Vantillians, including another volume uh, by uh, D.G. Hart and, um, and uh, John uh, Muether. And it's funny because the reason Clark got kicked out of Wheaton was basically because he was too much of a Calvinist, right? I mean, he was just, his Calvinism was, was just getting in the way of, of, of the faculty there. And so they kicked him out for being too strong a Calvinist. And ironically, uh, Robin says that um, that Hart and, and Muether, uh, is that how you say his name, Muether? John Muether? Um, I say Muether, but I'm not sure. Muether, yeah. Uh, in their book, The Fighting the Good Fight, A Brief History of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they actually, they basically misrepresent Clark's uh, position there. Uh, and, and and trying to accuse him of being uh, too evangel too broadly evangelical and not reformed enough. It's just very ironic how a lot of these very simple like statements of fact that are not even accurate. And so this is why we are extremely grateful and and so glad that you've you've sh you've shown so much light with your biography. People read don't just read the footnotes. Read everything. Read the content. Read the appendices. Read everything. And, and use that as a springboard to read the rest of Clark's stuff and, you know, stuff from the Trinity Foundation. It's just so important. And people think, a lot of people think that, um, you know, what's the big deal? You know, why, why should we care? Why does this matter, right? I mean, this is the OPC. It has, what, like 30,000 members? I mean, that's nothing. That's like a, that's a tiny fingerprint and in, in, in considered to the rest of, 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 you know, the Christian world or whatever. And so, like, why, why does it even matter, you know? Like, what is the big deal? And honestly, when you think about this, this is a massive implications for everybody, not just the OPC and not just for Presbyterians, not just for people who went to Westminster or whatever, um, because these men were towering giants of the faith. These these guys were somebody to be reckoned with. And they had huge uh, their thought had huge consequences, not just on on Presbyterianism, but on on evangelicalism as a whole. And so. Um, I don't know, Tim, Tim, did you want to get into something and to jump into something else right now? Or what, how did you want to go about this? <laughs> well, I, I knew that having you on was going to be great, man, because uh, <laughs> I, I think you guys could probably do this whole podcast by yourselves, just uh, talking about all the Clark stuff. But yeah, um, I, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. And, uh, you know, Carlos, you, you said, why does this matter? Well, because God has given the church, uh, he's gifted the church with elders and you and I have talked about this, that we shouldn't uh, neglect or disregard the the, uh, the the teachers that God has given to us now or before. And when you have when you have uh, teaching as excellent as this, you said it right. He's a he's a giant in the faith. He, the way that the way that he's he's talked about it just it's it's very uh, it. it, it it upsets me to, to be honest with you to, to hear the way that he's talked about and you know uh, talking about uh, why Clark left and and all that stuff. I mean, Carlos, you and I have heard uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant misrepresent Clark a number of times. Uh, we believe that's that he to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's putting it mildly. And and, and Carlos is actually uh, still in the process of writing uh, an open letter to Dr. Scott Oliphant. To correct a lot of his uh, a lot of his wrong statements about Clark, I'll just say it that way: wrong statements about Clark. And and so you see this coming out of the people who have the platform, who are in the position of authority, 
at, at the, these places, they are misrepresenting Clark. And so, you know, for, for ordinary guys like us, I mean, it takes a lot of work to just read Clark for yourself and then give him a fair treatment and come away and realize, why are these guys saying stuff like this? So let's, uh, let's go ahead and get, get into this. I, I want to ask Doug, what, what, what introduced you to Clark? And then from what I understand, you, you know, his family, you know, his, his daughters that, that, I mean, it says authorized biography. So this was a, an intense labor. And I really quickly just want to uh, reference an article on the Trinity Foundation by the late John Robbins uh, titled An Introduction to Gordon Clark. That's a great introduction, but what Doug has done is is phenomenal. Doug has, has uh, you're, you're going to learn a lot from uh, from this book. So Doug, tell us a little bit about how you get, got into Clark. And just so everybody knows, uh, Doug, do you have kids? Because uh, Carlos and his wife have kids and I have kids with my wife, so you might hear some screaming. It's we're recording this around the time that we would normally be doing uh, bedtime with our kids, so uh, people might be hearing some some protest screams in the background. But uh, that, that's what that is. No children over here, so the screams would be would have to be my own, I suppose. <laughs> that's good. So, Doug, uh, tell us how did you get into Clark? What made you undertake this this project? What do you hope to accomplish from it? All right, um, I will address that. I wanted to address a, a couple of the things uh, mentioned previously because I, I think there's some interesting things that have been said, and then I'll get on to uh, my interest into Gordon Clark. Um, you had mentioned just a minute ago his daughters, and if you if you see on the book the foreword by Lois Zeller and Betsy Clark George, those are so. Um, they wrote the foreword, and I was able to call it the authorized biography um, because of the permission of his two daughters. And Dr. Clark had two daughters, no sons. Um, I have a chapter I call Clark's boys. Those are not his natural boys, but those are his students who who have you know were were called his boys in in one in a certain sense. Um, so. You're right. Very much um, involvement with the Clark family really helped out. Um, what we really wanted to do. So I was thinking, I'm, I'm, you know, 98% favorable to, to uh, that reform tradition. I'm 99% favorable to the Trinity Foundation. But we wanted to. I wanted to have this book be uh, a third viewpoint. Someone coming in, not really with a with a, um, a dog in the fight um, coming in I'm just do, I'm, I'm doing this as a history I'm doing it from the the Clark's the Clark's perspective but with their involvement and in trying to aggregate all these sources from I, I appreciate the OPC historians you know I think I got a lot of good information from their books and I got a lot of personal in, uh, input from Danny Ollinger from John Meather I never did speak with DG Hart, but I, you know, I spoke with a lot of people, um, and they they have been very helpful in this project. Um, so yeah, when when you you know you you meant you mentioned that quote from Sean Garrity that he expects that I will receive heat for this book, um, I found that interesting because uh, one of the people I spoke to a couple times during the process of writing the book was um, the well-known theologian John Frame. Um, frame was helpful. He he's one of the endorsements 
um, in the book. He, he gave me some of his recollections about him and Dr. Clark. Um, I don't know if much of that got into the book. The endorsement certainly is there. Um, but when I, when I asked John Frame or when I brought up some of the theological questions from the controversy in the 40s, Frame seemed just entirely worn out from it. You, you could tell for the last 40, <laughs> 50 years, he's been going through these conversations. And he just go, you, you want someone who's taken heat for their views, you know, look no further than John Frame, who has, you know, according to, you know, one's perspective, you can say John Frame, uh, Clark himself said, John Frame, Van Til, or, you know, a Bonsonite or Van Tillian of a certain stripe might think of frame as same way, like deviating from Van Til, although others think frame presents the best interpretation of Van Til. So anyways, frame received a lot of heat. I'm quite shocked so far. I haven't really got a lot of heat from the book. I I hope the book gets well read and we get more heat. Um, But uh, I I think it's uh, unavoidable when you're discussing Clark and Van Til and some of these topics you could write anything and you're going to get heat. So it's going to happen. Um, somebody's the, somebody's probably already, already writing a nasty piece against me. Yeah, that is a good so we'll, we'll wait for it to show up. <laughs> um, the thing I wanted to mention before I, uh, before I'll talk about my uh, history here with Gordon Clark is um, Carlos had mentioned the rereading the, complaint and the answer to uh, important documents in the 1940s in the in the controversy in the biography also i've included a previously unknown document um, to unknown to the world of um, gordon clark's own writing during the controversy um, it's called studies in the doctrines of the complaint written in it's listed on the top winter 1946-47 so sometime in that period is is when he was working on it and wrote it and it was a, ty- a typed-up document that he sent to some of the ministers. I found it both in Dr. Clark's personal collection of papers and also in the Westminster Seminary archives. There was another copy received by one of the ministers. So um, that document will shed more light on the controversy and is one of the um, very important um, documents for a historian looking into the case. That's why I. That's why you need to read the appendix. Read the appendices too. It's very important for you to read the whole <laughs> yeah. book. I mean, right. it is just full of good stuff. Yes, um, I actually have the introduction highlighted. So yes, you need to read the whole book. <laughs> um, so tell us how you got involved with Clark, um, studying uh, his 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 work, and then for those who may not be familiar with Clark. Tell us a little bit about who Clark was. Yeah, I um, came across Clark after um, a series of more and more aggressive readings for a stronger defense of the Christian faith, um, reading through a lot of Elvin Plantinga, or Plantinga as some might say, um, as well as William Lane Craig, Hugh Ross, reading into um, libertarianism, a lot of Ron Paul, read just about everything of his, everything of Ayn Rand's. Um, And then after this period, really didn't see a lot in secular philosophy that was of much interest. And I was looking for a good Christian critique of Rand. And I came across um, 
Without a Prayer, uh, a book by John Robbins. He subtitles it, um, Ayn Rand and the Close of Her System. Borrowing <laughs> he's borrowing a title from a, an old economics book. Um, I, it was a critique of um, Karl Marx, I believe. And if I can't remember who wrote it. Was it Averk? I can't remember. Maybe you guys know. Uh, who no, that, that's, I actually did not know that. That's very interesting. That's <laughs> yeah, Robbins, you know, had studied the libertarians and the Austrian um, economists. He had studied under Hans Senholtz, the Christian economist and of the Austrian school at Grove City. And I was very interested in the Austrian school of economics, which in fact has some similarities to Clark's thought, which is, is fascinating. But um, so I read John Robbins' critique of Rand and I that pretty much said, okay, no more of that. Obviously that's a dead end. And I appreciated Robin's critique. And then at the end of his book, he has a little picture of Gordon Clark and, and he writes in there, Calvinist philosopher, Gordon Clark, you know, is the greatest man who has ever lived. Like just overdone. <laughs> heap of praise that Robbins would do for Clark. And I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> Calvinism, that's scary. You know, I was a Lutheran. I grew up Lutheran. I was Lutheran uh -oh. at the time. Um, I became a Presbyterian through Gordon Clark's work and through other Presbyterians. But at the time I read that uh, scary Calvinism and you're overly praising this guy. Just put it aside, didn't think about it. And then, you know, maybe a year later I was looking for Christian philosophy. And I came across Gordon Clark's Introduction to Christian Philosophy, that book, um, giving him a chance because I'd heard his name once before from that Robbins critique of Rand. And it was, it was in that book, and I just, I really didn't understand a lot of it the first time, but I realized something was going on there because I wasn't getting this um, Elvin Plantinga type of um, defense of theism, which is essentially what reformed epistemology is. It's a defense of theism. I was seeing something authentically Christian, kind of juggling some thoughts in my own mind that where would I start? You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That was, if I was going to create some kind of axiom, that was what was going on in my mind. I was trying to develop some type of epistemology. And then finally I, I ran into Clark and I said, the truth of the scriptures and so i um, grew more and more fascinated with his theory of knowledge his epistemology more aggressively and over a period of four years read all or just about all of gordon clark's books he wrote over 40 books and um started thinking that uh, a lot of the books are critiques of other views and only a short bit is his positive construction at the end he'll call it a christian construction and so i said why don't we compile all these into one place have a compendium of what he actually said on his christian views so people don't have to read 40 books <laughs> well i started working on that and it was just very soon that i realized the historic context is very important um, i think a biography is going to be much more well received and will help explain the historical context of Gordon Clark's thought, which it's his epistemology that fascinates me and continues to this day 
um, to fascinate me and I'm still working on um, related topics. Um, but he, you know, brought me into a world of the Westminster Confession. And that's, you know, by calling the book The Presbyterian Philosopher and showing in there how Clark emphasizes the Westminster Confession, I wanted to do and showing that Clark was a theologian and a philosopher of the Presbyterian faith. Not really coming up with anything new. I'm repeating what Augustine said and what has been put together by the divines at Westminster. Um, um, so maybe that gives a little, maybe that answers your second question too, is who, you know, what is Gordon Clark's thought or who is, who is he? He's obviously the Presbyterian philosopher. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get into that. So in, in your book, you write that, uh, that there are two, um, man, you, as, your daughter, is it, is it yeah, bedtime? As you can tell, everybody in my house is excited <laughs> about Gordon Clark and about <laughs> what we're doing here. So excellent, we're all just excellent. cheering it on. Um, but no, and I actually, I'm also very glad that, yeah, I think it is getting uh, bedtime. Um, but I'm very glad you made the decision to write the biography as well, because, you know, his theology is there. If you want to see it, it's there. You know, the Trinity Foundation has published the, the majority of it. Um, it's, it's already there. And I think this is far, this was something that really needed to get more, uh, exposure and to really kind of uncover all of the layers of misunderstandings and misrepresentations of, of century of the, you know, the not centuries, the, the decades of, of, of history that has been piled on top of it. So um, I'm very glad that, that that was your decision to write this biography. And it's, it's already making a huge impact. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. So the book is not without without that, because you do get into this theology in the book. So I, I want everybody to know that. Um, and from what I got, you gave a very, very good overview of Clark's theology. Uh, in chapter five, you, you, it's uh, the origin of presuppositionalism. So let's go ahead and talk about that. You say that, uh, that Clark's view was influenced by, by two main factors. One was the, the rejection of empiricism and two, the acceptance of worldview thinking. And nowadays, most presuppositionalists, um, you, you hear them talk about worldviews. Well, my worldview can do this. Your, you know, your worldview can't. And so this is interesting because you actually, in your book, um, which I didn't know, you said that, that Clark may have been influenced by, uh, by Ventile in, uh, in presuppositionalism. And uh, I think you, you stated that he started to read Kuiper and uh, another, another person besides Kuiper uh, because that's who Ventile was being influenced by. So can you uh, just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the one of the challenges is that the historical record is quite lacking. So what is in that chapter is almost the extent of what I was able to surmise from this. But but I'm really surprised that there hasn't been really written something like the origins of presuppositionalism before. Now, there is a, a, a PhD dissertation by Timothy McConnell, about um, Van Til's um, sort of origins of presuppositionalism, it's you know focusing just on him, and it shows that Van Til was influenced by um, Abraham Kuyper and um, Herman Herman Bavink, and really in this in this Dutch tradition. And um, so, as far as Clark's with Van Til early on, 
they you know they were members together of the reforming movement within the old Presbyterian Church within the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterian Church. And they lived in, together in the same city of Philadelphia. They both um, was with um, J. Gresham Machen. And so they had this connection in this, in this small circle of sort of the, the elite intellectuals of the Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterians. So as far as when they first meet, it's they, they certainly knew each other by the early 1930s. Um, they were together. Their their names are on uh, on the header of letters together. They were both members of the Reformation Fellowship, seeking reform within the PCUSA. So they started when they started writing. There's a few extant letters between them in 1937 and 38 at which time Gordon Clark was already using some of Van Til's, Till would call his syllabi, his, um, his classroom notes. Clark was already using those for some of his courses at Wheaton College, and, um, and so they had this connection. John Frame also recalls that he was told that, that Clark and Van Til would walk together in the 30s when they both lived there. So Clark leaves for Wheaton in 36, and then the letters between the two men start. And so you don't really know what happens before. A lot of things in Clark's life, it's hard to know what happens before 36 because he's not writing a lot of letters. But there is a letter in the Van Til collection written in 1941 or 42, which I, I might be wrong on that date, but it says that um, opposed to Gordon Clark at the foundation of the church. So that was in 1936 when the, when the OPC was founded. So the complaint against Clark, 44, was eight years after the foundation of the church. Already in 1936, Clark and Van Til knew each other, probably had had discussions, realized some differences. And you can see in the letters uh, Van Til's frustration with, with Clark um, at one point, Van Til writes to someone saying, I, I explained this issue to Gordon Clark, and he just brushed it off with a wave of the hand. <laughs> and they, you know, like, Van Til was like, you know, I had, I had Clark over at my house or something. I mean, just imagine how much one of us today would have been on that conversation <laughs> between Clark and Van Til um, discussing the role of um, the place of Greek thought, Greek philosophy. Well, and and so in in your book, you also point out that when uh, when Gordon Clark um, that he was actually surprised because he anticipated that he when he was uh, uh, putting in his application for uh, and, and by the way, I mean you've studied this stuff extensively. I've read your book like I've read a few chapters twice, so I might if you have to correct me, just correct me. But. Um, you, you you said that he was uh that he was surprised because he didn't garner uh support from Ventil and some of the other faculty members when he was applying for his uh his ordination and um let me see if i can read uh okay so at, at, on chapter 6 uh, origins of the ordination controversy i'm going to go ahead and read uh this this page this is a quote by Clark, and uh, he says, as you know, as active during the early 30s in arousing USA congregations, 
to the seriousness of the apostasy in, in that church. I had a hand in the Reformation Fellowship and its successor, the poorly named Presbyterian Constitutional Covenant Union. Not only did I speak in Pennsylvania, but I traveled as far as in this effort. Then in 1936, I had the honor of giving the nomination for uh, nomination speech for Dr. Machen. For the next seven or eight years, I taught in Wheaton, where I recommended with some success that ministerial students attend Westminster rather than Dallas or elsewhere. This led to my forced resignation. Because of my continuing interest in this work, I decided to apply for ordination. To my utter astonishment, instead of being welcomed, I met hostility. It was I who, with two others, brought charges of heresy against the Auburn Affirmationists when the Westminster faculty excused themselves. My reaction was not so much anger, but utter stupefaction and confusion. And so you go on to point out that uh, Paul Woolley was another one, that Clark was, was friends with him, and uh, Van Thiel had actually spoken favorably of Clark. Yeah, I, there's, there's so many fascinating connections here, because until Gordon Clark's father died in 1939, he was on the board of directors, theological seminary. Gordon Clark's father was, David Scott Clark. Really? And so... Um, so, the, you know, the Clarks are tied in there with the seminary. And then in 1941, this is three years before the complaint comes up against Clark, Gordon Clark gives the commencement speech at Westminster. So, I mean, yeah. this is a man who has high respect in the church. As you mentioned in that quote, for Gordon Clark with two other men, um, uh, Griffiths was Machen's um, council, I think it's Griffiths, and then um, Thompson, who is this um, <laughs> sort of aggressive character, later becomes like strongly pro-Vantillian in the controversy. Um, Murray For Force Thompson um, bring charges of heresy against pastors in Philadelphia, and the case ends up um, sort of failing in some committee. But, the, but as I note in the book, the important thing is that Clark and these two guys are doing this when um, the faculty at Westminster, um, in much more prominent position, is not doing these same types of um, moves against the liberals in the church. Carlos, did you you were um, you were talking about uh, last night in our conversation? You were talking about the uh, the the Clark Van Til controversy and what you thought were maybe some of the motives in trying to stall Clark or prevent him from being ordained. Um, do you want to, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something that we have shed a lot of cyber blood on, uh, especially on Facebook <laughs> in particular. Blood. Yeah, because, you know, there's so much, there's just so much misinformation and strong opinions on, on, frankly, on both sides, but there in particular, like when, you know, Tim, I'm sure you remember we've gotten we've gone through a lot of back and forths with people, um, uh, particularly from the Vantillian side, that just have a very wrong view of Clark and, and of what actually happened. And so um, the the thing about that that's interesting, actually, I don't know if you if this is what you're referring to, Doug, but the, the when they brought those uh, charges, those three men with or those two men with Clark, 
And my understanding was that that was actually, they were laying charges against uh, some people who were teaching, uh, who subscribed to the Auburn Avenue theology. Is that right? Um, and, no, there's, there's a, uh, you want to make a distinction there. Um, the, this is referring to the Auburn affirmationists, the Auburn affirmation oh, in, in okay. the 19, the Auburn affirmation came out in 1924 and it was a, a pro-modernism or pro-liberalism document that was opposed to the five fundamentals of the church. The, the other one you mentioned, the Auburn Avenue theology, I believe starts in the 1990s or sometime later, and that's related to the federal vision movement. So those are two separate, um, but I would say both wrong <laughs> uh, movements. Yeah. Okay, good. That's a good uh, point of clarification. But yeah, so I've read a lot about this. I've, I've been really just done a lot of, of my own kind of research whenever I've had time to, to look over this stuff. And it's really interesting because when I, as I was rereading the complaint, what was your original question, Tim? Um, that we were, yeah. uh, you were, you were talking about how, uh, I, I guess, uh, the, the people that were, that were aligned with Ventile all came from the same camp. If you remember the, uh, Oh, right. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, well, I'm quite interested. Um, I'm interested in what Tim had said before, which is, you know, what, what do you think Carlos on, um, the I think sort of related to the causes of the controversy. Why did the complaint get brought up against Clark? And uh, you know, I spend a chapter of this in the book, but I believe you haven't read that portion, and so I'm interested in your opinion. Without having been biased by my writing, I'd like to know, you know what, what do you what do you think from the sources <laughs> it's, it's that you've test. seen? Yeah, um, you know, I right. I put together. I I think that there was certainly in one of the four or five issues I bring up, one of them completely never talked about. Um, some of the others um, have been mentioned in various places, perhaps, but um, it's been somewhat challenging. Perhaps in the book, I don't specify to what degree each of these factors was in factor, although I do mention one which I do believe is the main factor. So I, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear um, your thoughts on it having, without having my yeah. bias. <laughs> very, that's very interesting. And actually a lot of the source material that I read, um, I think I actually got from you. Cause you know, the, the way we all kind of met, well, not Tim, Tim, I met personally, but um, we kind of all met on Facebook, I guess there's, a, there's some Clarkian Facebook groups and uh, devoted to, you know, talking about Clark's thought and things like that, which has been very helpful um, in many ways. And um, uh, I remember um, you having, during your research, you did a lot of research and you were posting a lot of source material like uh, from the Presbyterian Guardian, which I believe was the, uh, uh, what, what was that? The, it was like a paper or the periodical, the, the OPC periodical or something like that. Um, yeah, the, the Presbyterian Guardian, um, similar to the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, are the unofficial arms of the OPC. So the, the Guardian yeah. was not the official OPC paper, but every person who wrote for it was in the OPC. <laughs> the, right. the, majority, the majority of the seminary was led by OPC men. So it's, it was some sort of way to say that we are you know independent or not liable for one for the other, yeah. but it, it was you know, essentially connected. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to preface this with we are, you know, Tim and I, we are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so I'm with my the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. 
So because when I and this this really struck me because when I reread um, the complaint and the answer, I was actually astonished. I was actually completely shocked at how, um, frankly, how pharisaical the the Westminster faction that that was uh, complained against Clark was. It was one of the honestly, the way I see it now is if you want to look at a good example of how modern day Pharisees would look like, just read the complaint against Clark because it just astonished me how these guys were swallowing camels and gagging at gnats to try to pick uh, Clark apart and, and get rid of him from, not let him have a foot in the LPC. And so it really astonished me because you can tell from reading the complaint that these guys were looking at anything to, to try to grab, they were trying to pick it's it's like when the when you read in the New Testament and how the Pharisees were just kind of following Jesus along and looking for something to trip him up on. That's the impression that I was getting when I was reading the complaint and how they were finding every sort of little technical rabbit philosophical and theological rabbit trail to try to pin Clark. And um, it really just it, it's shameful. Like it, it really is shameful the way that the, these men conducted themselves against Clark and how the 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 the, the subsequent people who uh, who who celebrate this event as a triumph of Van Til from from the Van Til side and how he was able to solidify and define the reformed identity of the orthodox presbyterian church but it's really kind of sad because um the way these men behaved was just it was one of the worst displays of pharisaicism and theological gnat gagging that I've ever read about in my life and so, and I don't, and I, I really honestly don't say those words lightly. And this is what we do at Simple Reformanda Radio, you know, just, just a little uh, caveat there. We, we like to do things, um, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. So um, you can take that for what it is. But the thing, the thing about this, it looks like you really get the impression that these guys were going after Clark. They did not want him in there. Now, why they did, why didn't they want him in there? Basically, they had a very different idea, a, a very particular idea of this is my understanding of, of, of what Reformed theology is and what the Reformed identity of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church should be. And their, ident their identity was very colored, apparently, from the Dutch Reformed theology, uh, which um, it was interesting when I was reading David J. Engelsma's uh, review of your book, he actually met, brought something up that I didn't, I wasn't even aware of, that the men who uh, complained against Clark, a lot of them were part of the CRC, which is the Christian Reformed uh, Dutch uh, Church. And so they had this element of sort of like this mystical, irrational uh, branch of theology that comes through like Bavink and, and uh, guys like that, that has like very irrational elements in, in how they, they talk about the incomprehensibility of God and, and, and things that were basically brought up in the complaint against Clark. And so um, I think they reckon, and I've read uh, John Robbins is, uh, you know, can the Orthodox Presbyterian Church be saved? And he talks about how um, they, they didn't want Clark because, uh, well, you know, they, there were differences, obviously. His apologetic method was different. Um, his, they also recognized his influence in Wheaton as a, as a very effective teacher. And so because they were at odds with him, they didn't want him to, um, to, 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 to undermine their influence, I guess. But one of the big reasons that actually probably the main reason that Robbins points out is that this became an issue of ecclesiastical uh, uh, and 
seminary uh, uh, control. And he argued, he claims that um, actually, and in, in the, the reading the source material too, you see that the men who, uh, there was a thing called a program for action, I think, that it, they talk about, that because of the, the attacks that were launched against Clark, that they wrote a program for action. And, and they, what they wanted to do was make the seminary subservient to the oversight uh, uh, of the OPC. But the Westminster faction, they wanted to gain, they wanted to stay autonomous and not, and, and actually gain control of the OPC so that they would not be, uh, so because they wanted to retain their autonomy and their control. And so, uh, honestly, this sounds like a scene from the New Testament with the Pharisees having all of this elitist religious control. And you have, like, you know, Jesus and the apostles and these prophets who are, like, telling you what, you know, the truth as it is. And then these guys are just scrambling frantically to try to get rid of this guy. So it, that's basically the impression that I got once I reread. I didn't realize how bad it looked and how bad it actually was when I until I read it again, and I was just astonished at how um, the most ridiculous accusations that they leveled against Clark. And so that's basically my understanding of it: that the primary cause was the Westminster faction did not want to be controlled by the OPC, and so they wanted to retain that autonomy. And because of this program for action, it actually specified that they wanted to ordain Clark uh, to do justice to him, but also they were hoping to. There was plans to uh, nominate him to for the seminary uh, to teach at the seminary, and so and and at the same time make the 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 seminary subservient to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So how did I do? Yeah, you got um, <laughs> you you've got the outline there. Like you, you know, it's it's that's pretty impressive the extent to which you understand this this situation without having read um, what I've written. So I'm really excited about. Um, <laughs> you getting to read uh, these chapters. Yeah, because, me too. Um, me I, too. You know, I've got some, I've, I've got a lot of, of uh, primary source material there by some of the things you said and help you um, probably build more nuances on, on these things as well. I don't think anything you said is wrong, um, but I think you'll continue to learn more things there um, as I did when I went through those records. I was just thinking about now, and when you were saying this, you know, this this sort of um, control of the seminary, this type of approach. There's some similarities between what between what's going on here against Clark and what went on just seven years prior with the split between the Orthodox Presbyterians and the Bible Presbyterians. It, some of these same issues come up, and Alan McRae, the New Testament professor, leaves over these over some of these issues. And, you know, along with him, of course, Carl McIntyre, J. Oliver Buswell, um, and then, well, Francis Schaeffer, who was just a student at the time, but becomes uh, more well-known later. So, yeah, there's um, the role of the Bible Presbyterians in this story is fascinating as well. And I do mention them in a few places, but it's important to see um, sort of, I think, as you're saying, um, how were people treated in the OPC if they didn't agree with um, right. Van Til and the majority of the faculty, where, where were they placed in the church? And in Clark and others would say, you know, you're happy for us to be in the church, but as soon as we ask for a position of leadership, it, we get rejected. Um, and, and you know what? Um, you said something right now, uh, Doug, that was, 
that I wanted to comment on um, because in your book, you point out that uh, Clark wasn't the only one who deviated theologically from, from them. Uh, as a matter of fact, they had actually ordained, uh, I, was it Woolley that you said? Uh, Paul Woolley, who's, um, yeah, okay, right here. You write uh, on page uh, 86, you say, Clark was not the only figure in the OPC who had views at variance with the Westminster uh, WTS faculty. There was a large diversity of views across the ministers of the young denomination, but these views, these views were tolerated as long as they were kept sufficiently private. And yeah. so it, it seems like, <laughs> and so they even, uh, who, who was it? Uh, you say, uh, just above that, uh, and if the authors of the complaint were opposed only to Clark's theological position, in order to be consistent, they would have to have, they would have to, they would have had to oppose other ordinations as well. Po pointing this out, OPC missionary Henry Corey wrote to Ventil, quote, it has been suggested that a graduate named uh, Francis, how do you say that name? Do you know? Uh, Mahaffey? I believe it's Mahaffey. Yeah, who, who accepts Dr. Clark's apologetic, I understand, passed through Presbytery without any objections on the part of those who blocked Clark. This would seem to be an inconsistency if the case against Clark was on apologetic grounds. And so it seems that Clark was such a, a polarizing figure, but he was, he was an intellectual giant, and he, he posed a, a threat to what they wanted to accomplish and so that's why, because it's not, it's not, it wasn't just the, in your book, what I'm getting is, and you can comment on this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't just that he, he differed theologically, because there were other people who got through without any problem, who had his same view, who, who also differed theologically, but the fact that Clark was, was a force to be reckoned with, and they, they might actually lose influence or control in, in the organization. Yeah, Clark was certainly um, influencing a lot of students. Um, I mentioned in the book how many, a large percentage of the Westminster Theological Seminary students were um, former students of Gordon Clark's at, um, there were times where this was, you know, I, I forget the numbers, you know, it's more than a quarter of the student body were Clark students. And, and so I comment, you know, even if the faculty views firsthand, they knew them secondhand from his students, and so they had been dealing with those issues. Um, that, that quote that you had just mentioned from um, Henry Corey, full of situations where ministers write to Van Til, and they're, and they're friends of Van Til, they're favorable to him, but they say things like, you really better be persuasive here because if you don't have a solid case against Clark, it's going to look really bad. <laughs> so, right. uh, or here, Corey writes, you know, this looks like it's inconsistent. Why are you, you know, putting this complaint against Clark for having this view? We just passed the other guy last week or, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> we just let the other guy get through and he's got the same views. So, you know, if it's, if it's a matter of principle, um, you know, if it were just a matter of theological principle, um, this wouldn't, there wouldn't be this inconsistency. So there's, there's something else going on here 
more than just the theological positions. Right. And that's so what I, Carlos, I yeah, that's what Carlos was trying to say is that they were reaching at Nats to try to stop him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, you're, um, you're correct. You're looking in the right directions for, um, Carlos you know, is looking in the right directions. I say Tim is correct, but Tim's read my book, so I'd just be saying I'm correct. Which I yeah, feel like well, I, I feel well, like I need Carlos to... and I have had these conversations prior. Uh, we, we've talked about this stuff uh, for years. I, but but yeah, your your book goes into uh, into. There's so much more in here than uh, than, than I, I realize. But let me uh, well. Uh, Doug, did you want to say anything more on that? Because I, I want to take us to the next uh, section, uh, Clark's contributions. No, I don't want to get into any more heat than I okay, need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if uh, anybody wants to Just, email it, and hate mail to us, it's uh, <laughs> D-O-U-G. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's, I'm going to give them your, your email. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, Carlos, yeah. what's up, man? Yeah, no, and I do, I do want to make this. We will gladly take the the heat. You know, we if you have an issue, email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. Um, we will take you to task, no problem. Um, I think that um, there's that Robin's we, personality coming out in you right now. <laughs> you know, and it's it's really interesting because, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just really excited. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, uh, but so yeah. And I know you wanted to talk, you're going to talk about Clark's theological contributions, but if you could also, Doug, just give us kind of like a brief introduction as to the man himself, uh, where he came from, who he was. Why don't we start with the fact that he was the, the son of a son of a Presbyterian minister? Yeah, that's how I start off the biography in the first chapter um, called The Presbyterian Heritage of Gordon Clark, mm -hmm. where um, I note that not only was his father a Presbyterian minister who led a prominent church in Philadelphia and taught at um, two colleges there and wrote theological books. My grandfather, who, his father's father, who was a Presbyterian minister as well. And going back, you can even find that his great-grandfather was a, was a ruling elder in the church. So they come out of Scotland, they have this Presbyterian heritage, and Clark grows up there in Philadelphia sort of in the center of these Presbyterian controversies as the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s rages. And he's a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And at this time, he's putting together a chapter of the League of Evangelical Students, which is sort of like a campus crusade club or an intervarsity. It's connected with these guys such that he's able to write to J. Gresham Machen and say, I would like you to come speak and he actually, in 1928, gets Machen to stop over and speak. He's um, a graduate student. Yeah, it's in his graduate student years. Clark spends, um, well, a long time at the University of Pennsylvania. He gets his undergraduate degree there in French, um, stays there, gets a PhD in philosophy. And then, uh, in the meanwhile, having taken a break in 1927 to study in Heidelberg, Germany, and then again in 1930, he spends six months at the Sorbonne in, in Paris um, studying. Probably it seems to me he's there to study under a particular philosopher in the tradition of Plotinus, which who was a 
interest of Clark's in Greek philosophy. And so that's Clark's background there. He stays at um, for some more years, but never gets promoted. He's, he retain he remains a instructor rather than an associate or assistant professor. And this sort of upsets him. He's, he's, his continued work in the, in the, in the church is I think upsetting people at the university as well, because Clark is promoting these, um, this schism, well, not schism, I mean, this, this, uh, you know, reformed conserving conservative movement in the church, which leads <laughs> to the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian church. So, um, Clark then goes to Wheaton college, Butler for 28 years, teaches at covenant college for 10 years and teaches in the summers at uh, Winona Lake School of Theology and at Sangre de Cristo Seminary and occasionally at some other places. And in this, in this period of time, he writes over 40 books. He's one of the regular contributors to a very popular Christianity Today magazine and journal. Um, he's a very busy man. I mean, he, for, for some of these years, he was the, the pastor of a small to moderate-sized church um, all while being a professional um, philosophy professor. That, that's his main job. And you know, I've sort of worked on a speech. I'm trying to get down to Covenant College at some point to give a speech on Gordon H. Clark as an educator. The reality is, is that was his primary job. He taught in the university for 60 years from 1924 to 1984. Wow. And so was known by many people as a philosophy professor. And um, yeah, but always, always involved in the church as much as possible. You know, founding member of the Evangelical Theological Society. Um, you know, involved in a number of Presbyterian denominations due to circumstances mostly out of his control. Only one time does he, or two times, does he sort of leave a denomination or change affiliation on his. Sometimes the whole denomination goes um, goes liberal or whatever circumstances happen. But yeah, Clark, as I say, in one was involved uh, at least some way, if not a prominent way in most all of the Presbyterian church and schisms splits within the 20th century in, in American Presbyterianism. So, you know, anything from the PCUSA, the big liberal church to the tiny OPC um, to the um, movement uh, of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, which eventually becomes part of the PCA. Uh, Clark was involved in all these places. Fascinating. You mentioned that uh, Clark taught until 1984, which I believe that was a year before he died, right? That's right. Yeah, he, he died in 1985, and he had last taught just nine months prior to that in the summer of 84. His last courses were at um, Sangre de Cristo Seminary. Um, just prior to that, he had taught his last courses at Covenant College in the spring, I believe, of 1984. Um, and then he packed his bags, moved to Colorado permanently, rather than just calling it a summer visit. Stayed out there, failed his driver's license test. As I say, the first, <laughs> first time he ever failed a test. And then he, gives it, he, he gives up driving, spends the last... Um, period of his life, continuing to write furiously as John Robbins 
um, presses him to write more and Clark presses Robbins to publish as fast as he can. And um, they're as <laughs> hard as they can with each other. And this actually gives me an opportunity to mention that uh, with the help of some other individuals, um, Jaime Rodriguez, own Errol Ng, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, have um, completed the, the known collection of Gordon H. Clark's write, uh, letters, um, 915 letters, and a section awesome. of these, about 200 of these, well, I think it's 145 of these, are being put together in a, a volume called The Selected Letters of Gordon Haddon Clark, which hmm. published by the Trinity Foundation. Awesome. Um, wow, that is awesome. Very likely this year. So it's currently being edited um, at the Trinity Foundation. I've given them my sort of final compiled version. You know, uh, I, I really appreciate you going into uh, the history of uh, or just just who he was. And um, because I, I just got to mention this, uh, going back to a lot of the misinformation, I've heard Dr. Uh, Scott Oliphant say that uh, if it, one of his criticisms was that uh, Clark misunderstood Van Teel because Clark wasn't uh, if he had understood the reformed tradition better, he would have understood what Van Teel was saying. And one of the things that you point out was he was a third generation Presbyterian minister. Uh, he thoroughly understood the Reformed tradition. And so I, I really appreciated reading that, that part in your book. I want to I wanna end with this. Um, I want to talk about, you have a section in here, the theological contributions of, of Gordon Clark. And you, you list out four, so I'll read. Uh, the goal of this chapter is to explain four of Gordon Clark's significant doctrinal contributions. Namely, these are, one, an axiomized epistemological system, two, theological superlapsarianism, three, a solution to the problem of evil, four, arguments for a return... <laughs> Carlos, <laughs> that, that's that, that's um, really funny. It's, that's it's, my that's my time to go to bed alarm. Not this night, baby. All right. Uh, four arguments for uh, arguments for return to traditional logic, and I'd imagine that this was uh, probably a difficult chapter to write, just on the grounds of I think it would be difficult to identify only four of Clark's contributions and, and I know that you, you talk about others but um, how, how did you come up with these four particular contributions because uh, Carlos and I were talking about it and uh, Carlos the, the one that I, I would have thought of was uh, his uh, his view of, of defining uh, faith and Carlos you had a you had another contribution that you that you thought of right what was it yeah well and I from what we talked about Tim I don't have the book with me, but you do talk about these other contributions and the fact that Clark had numerous theological contributions. And one of the other major ones that I think he had was his Christology. And I know I actually read your chapter, Doug, on it. You had a brief chapter on, on discussing his his theology of personhood and, and the Trinity and, and Christology. And uh, I honestly think that is one of the greatest contributions that Clark has blessed the church with, because if people... The church, if the church capitalizes on that, it will be able to solidify the Christian position incredibly uh, uh, in a very powerful way and, and also in an extremely relevant way 
specifically, you know, I listen to James White a lot uh, on the dividing line in his in this podcast, and he taught he he's a, an apologist uh, in large part now to Muslims, and this Christology that Clark uh, has developed and and really basically an extension of the Chalcedonian and the and the historic. Uh, Christology. I know a lot of people have challenged him on that, have slandered him on that, have accused him of Nestorianism about that. But I think that is one of the greatest contributions, and it will greatly help the church to engage and to uh, develop their apologetics uh, for uh, opposing sides like Islam in particular. And so, um, but I know even the fact that the fact that Gordon Clark was a Christian and a philosopher was a monumental contribution to the Christian. Uh, faith, because in 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 the Trinity Foundation and the stuff I've read from Robbins and from Clark is that you get the, the problem in a lot of the history of the church is that there was it, competent philosophers were very much lacking throughout the history of the church. I mean, you have Augustine at the beginning; he was a very influential guy. But then it's it's really kind of hard to find once you and that's one of the things that they, that uh, the guys I think Robbins laments the fact that the Reformation never really produced a a reformed philosopher per se. They had outstanding theologians, um, but that element of philosophy that there's always been like a sort of gap there in some ways. And how I mean they got most of it was there because by you have the truth in the Bible, you know you have the word. But the fact that Clark was so well grounded in philosophy, I think, helped him to properly engage the opposing views and to establish the Christian faith, knowing what he knows about the problems in philosophy. So, yeah, um, it was it was funny, Doug, because uh, last time I, I told Carlos, I said I, I want to go over these these uh, uh, this chapter talking about uh, Gordon Clark's contributions, and I read them to him and. Carlos was like, "What? You didn't write about the uh, the, the Trinity and the the incarnation?" I was like, "No, he did. He did. He, he dedicated a whole chapter to that." So I had to send him a screenshot of uh, of the pages, and and uh, that was just for this interview because uh, Carlos is buying a book from you. Uh, so I, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not doing a. What, what's I can't that? wait. Um, what, what piracy? Yeah, there's no piracy involved no, here, but yeah, uh, yeah can you? You're allowed to take a certain portion, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was just for this. I just couldn't so, wait. Yeah, I just couldn't wait. Um, but can you uh, can you go ahead and and just speak to this? Um, how how did you were these were these uh contributions? Did did you come up with these? I, I think it's hard to to just name four, uh, or and and then can you just uh, speak to this? Yeah, I think you guys have um, pointed out a, a couple of important things. One, as Tim said, there's lots of contributions. And as Carlos said, there's there's a very interesting um, dialogue here on the Trinity and on the Incarnation, as the two terms Clark uses, as you were saying, Christology, which is basically the Incarnation, the question of right. the nature of Christ. And so um, I spent a, a chapter on the Trinity and the Incarnation and Clark's definition of persons um, and discussed some of that um, issue. And then, of course, I spent three chapters on the controversy with Van Til. And so there's four theological issues, at least four theological issues there, you know, certainly a lot more um, implied. Um, and so there's contributions there or earlier on on the origins of presuppositionalism. And Clark's uh, 1946 
on um, Christian philosophy of education is where in in a published book format you see first some of Clark's presuppositionalism um, in in yeah very fascinating very important arguments there those are certainly contributions of Gordon Clark there they're out there they're important um, discussions this chapter on four theological contributions in some sense uh, some of these are maybe overlooked I would say the question on logic is quite not talked about as much as it probably should be um, although logic itself is discussed a lot in connection with Clark you know, particularly his controversial statement that in the beginning was the logic. You know, if you right. if, if someone brings that up first, you know, they're probably upset about Gordon Clark saying that. Um, um, these four issues, I think the first one, uh, ax, the uh, axiomatized epistemological system. This is a sort of this is an outworking of the presuppositionalism or bringing it to its ultimate conclusion. And it comes out of Clark's 1966 Wheaton lectures. He gave three lectures at Wheaton in 66 or 65. I keep forgetting that. And um, comes up with this idea that, or, or extends this idea that Christianity must be, in a sense, like geometry, that you have postulates that must be given, and then you have theorems that are deduced, derived from those postulates. And so for Clark, the Bible as the word of God is the postulate and everything else is a theorem that it, and so um, that's the first issue, which I think in my interest in Clark's epistemology, I think that is the greatest issue of what Clark is doing. Um, and if anything is going to be discussed about Gordon Clark, it should be his epistemology, but it's is a system. So the question of logic is tied in there. And, um, teleological superlapsarianism is something that has probably been said by a few other people before Clark, but maybe not as clearly as he's saying it. To read and understand that, it suddenly strikes you that the superlapsarian-infralapsarian debate is um, is really off in the wrong directions. That Clark has an answer that's just so clear. You say why? You know why hasn't everyone been saying this? Yeah. And then Clark's um, solution to the problem of evil. There's a book that the Trinity Foundation put out called um, "Problem Solved." I think or "God and Evil: Problem Solved," and it's actually taken a chapter out of Clark's "Reason, Religion, and Revelation," making it its own book. Well, "Problem Solved," which is quite an audacious title. And you read that book, and it's a short little book. And if you blink, you'll miss. Clark solution. He puts it in there in about <laughs> one sentence. And, and you go, wait, what what I missed it. But that solution actually comes up bef before that um book out of out of Reason, Religion, and Revelation, which I believe came out in um 72 or somewhere around there. Um Clark actually had the ideas much earlier in his article on determinism and responsibility way back in 20s or 1932. Some of these dates are skipping out of my mind now um you know you write these books and then like they get published a couple years later and you've forgotten everything <laughs> yeah um, you know that's funny i wish i had that problem <laughs> we haven't published anything yet so 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so you know you spend you spend so much time at the end of a book where you're just you're just talking <laughs> to a publisher and just editing and proofreading and proofreading and proofreading, and so yeah. you, you know, you've forgotten some of what you've done. Mark's solution to the problem of evil comes all the way back in, I believe, 1932, Evangelical Quarterly in London. Um, and he writes there um, on a solution to the problem of evil, which is essentially to um, read it for yourself and then read the book as well. And um, So, yeah, these are, these are four important theological contributions of his. Um, some of them may be overlooked. Um, perhaps some of them are the most important. In the book itself, I pretty much did overlook that um, definition of faith, which um, Clark goes into, you know, identifying faith in a, in a two-part rather than three-part definition. And that is very important. I've, re I've written about that recently on my blog. Yeah, it's one of many issues that just couldn't fit in the book. But I'm I'm happy that we kept the book at uh, was it about 300 pages, so we got it to a length where a publisher would print it. I don't want to have the <laughs> you know the full compendium of everything Gordon Clark ever said. Right. And, you know, try to you know be like Gary North or something, and <laughs> you know print off 30 volumes <laughs> to, to cover it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, all right. So here's here's what we're gonna do uh we are um let me let me go and pull this up because i wrote these down um doug i, I want to say uh thank you for for coming on the show uh we really appreciate you man uh i've benefited a lot from your work i want to recommend you do have a blog and uh where where can people find your your other writings and and your your blog what what's the name of it Okay, yeah, mine is um, douglasdalma.wordpress.com. Okay. So, um, you know, if you type in Gordon Clark and Doug or Dalma, D-O-U-M-A, you're going to find it pretty quick. I've, I've got all of Gordon Clark stuff on there. Um, I just realized I've been mispronouncing your name the whole time I was calling oh. you. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Duma. That's it's a, Dalma. That's yeah, yeah, Dalma is preferred pronunciation, that's but um, – yeah, I'm glad if um, people take a look there. You know, I, I, as you guys mentioned, us having met in the Garden, Gordon H. Clark discussion forum, that group. I mean, we've got a group, including you two, um, Luke Miner, C.J. Engel, Richard Bacon. Yeah. I mean, we've got a group of guys there that uh, have a lot of knowledge. And yeah. it's, been, it's been a great sounding board for various ideas. Yeah, I definitely recommend uh, Luke and C.J., uh, the, these guys know their, their Clark stuff. Um, and I, I've personally learned a lot from them. So I'm, I'm very grateful to those guys. Um, so let me, let me go ahead and announce this. We are, uh, Semper Reformanda Radio is going to give away uh, a signed copy of uh, Doug, Doug's book. I, 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 I said Doug. Uh, I, I was afraid I was going to butcher your name. I was like, I, I think I have the first name right, but uh, Doug Dalma. Oh man, yes, I, that's right, Dalma. Okay, of uh, Doug's book is, is we're going to give away a signed copy, and then Doug is also throwing in. Uh, let me let me count one, two, three, four, five, six other books by Gordon Clark. Uh, he's going to throw in language and theology. 
uh, Clark's personal recollections, the uh, the, uh, the commentary, the atonement, yeah. uh, his commentary on Colossians, his commentary on Philippians, and the incarnation. So we really want to promote Gordon Clark. We really want to promote this book. And what we're asking people to do is, hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed this episode with Doug, go ahead and share this on your Facebook or somebody else's Facebook. Just share it and tag me in it. Then you'll be entered to win, uh, entered into a drawing to win the book and win all of these other books. This is excellent, excellent stuff. So with that, Carlos, uh, Doug, is there anything else you guys want to uh, want to talk about before we, we go, uh, before we sign off tonight? Uh, I don't think so, but I, I just did want to say this was fantastic. Glad to be here. So if you guys um, do have other things you'd like to discuss, which I think there's plenty more to discuss, not only on this book, but various related things, um, I'd be glad to come back on um, sometime in the future. So um, definitely um, send another request my way. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll definitely be doing that because I'm always looking to uh, put uh, great content out there, and uh, and I know that you've got some really solid stuff. One of the things that uh, Doug, maybe for a future episode, that I'd like to talk about is some of the differences between Ventilianism and Clarkianism. And uh, Carlos uh, informed me that you actually have an article out about that, so we could bring you on and talk about that. Uh, one of the guys that is the the president of striving for eternity uh it's a ministry that the bible thumping wingnut is is under andrew rapaport was asking me about uh if there's an article out there and so i'm gonna i'm gonna probably send him your stuff because i haven't written the article i i don't know uh you know i don't know anywhere else to get that so uh but yeah we could we could definitely have you on man i'd, I'd love to do it uh we're we're all about this so I'd say that's a decent article. I'd give myself like a B plus on that article. It's not the greatest. Um, I, I don't know Van Til as thoroughly as, as a number of people do. Um, it, it would be great to combine some Van Tilian people, perhaps yourself. You said you were a former Van Tilian. So if you do know his works more thoroughly, you could comment on there about um, my representation of Van Til on those topics. But I think I have identified a dozen or more places at which they vary, but it's important to note that at the same time, Clark and Van Til had a lot in common. They both come mm -hmm. from the conservative Presbyterian tradition. So yeah. the sort of the, the sort of infighting here, it's um, very unfortunate when you see a when you see a set of guys who are many of the questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and Doug, I'm glad you said that because well that you said about wanting to you know willing to come back on the show consider this the consider this our request that we are going to have you again on the show to talk about all of the i mean we could do an entire series of shows on the clark van teel controversy on clark's many theological contributions i mean i i really do look forward to future episodes with you and discussing the stuff in more detail um but yeah, and, and I also, I want to highlight once again for people to check out Doug's blog because he has a lot of um, material, good material there, not just stuff that he has authored, but um, I believe you also have um, unpublished 
uh, works from Gordon Clark's uh, first principles and or first lessons in theology, I think, or introduction to Christian theology. And uh, you have a, you have some uh, I actually downloaded those already um, and, and look forward to reviewing the, to reading those. But so he's got a lot of really good stuff on there. Um, make sure you 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 check out his blog, get the book, read the book. This is I mean, we we if you want to be relevant, you need to read Doug's book. I mean, this is the best way <laughs> to um, this is the best way. This is one of the best ways now to get, you know, to to, to get into this whole thing about Gordon Clark and who he was and, and the controversies and his contributions and all of that different stuff. So we're very excited to have you on here, Doug. We thank you for for your work and for, um, you know, um, I, and, and I hope that, you know, I don't know how it's interesting. I'm really going to I'm looking I'm actually kind of interested to see how the reactions uh, uh, that that the your book is going to have, particularly from like the Westminster Vantillian side. I wonder how that's going to fare out and, and ferret out and, and things like that. So um, we uh, are gladly, we are more than, than willing to, uh, to take heat for, for, for the stuff that we say on here. And you know what, you can, you can just tell them to talk to us, you know, you can, whatever we say on the show, just tell them to talk to us. No problem. We'll take care of it. Um, yeah. you just know. tell them that that was those guys. It was their show. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, what's you know, the, Timer, the views of, of uh, the views of Doug may or may not represent the views of, of some peripheral <laughs> on the radio or something right. like that. Or vice disclaimer. versa. Yeah. 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 So in these theological debates, you either have to be um, more correct than your opponent or just more willing to spend the time and write voluminously <laughs> and <laughs> overwhelm them with material. No. Um, yeah. yeah. I hope we, um, <laughs> we don't do that. But. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, um, so, go for it, Carlos. No. So, so thank you again, Doug. We do look forward to having you back on. Um, and yeah, just um, I, I, there's so much more that I, that I want to talk about, but we will have to hopefully save that for a near a near future uh, episode. Yeah, definitely. We'll try to put something together. Uh, so once again, uh, comments, complaints, suggestions, questions, whatever it is. Email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. Uh, also check out Doug's uh, website, which we will put a link to. And uh, and be sure to share this episode to win uh, six books, one of them a signed copy of Doug Dalma's. I'm finally saying his name right. At the end of the interview, man. At the end of the interview. <laughs> you can't tell me at the start. <laughs> Actually, and, and I want to boast about something. Uh, if it's true, I hope this is true. But is Doug? Is this your first uh, podcast interview? Um, I've done a couple on the Ordinary Pastor podcast, which has recently been discontinued with a friend of mine from seminary, Cody Almanzar. Unfortunately, our second um, podcast, which was from a month or so ago, was somehow deleted on his computer right after <laughs> the oh, no, um, no. day. Um, so we had a we had an initial interview right when the book came out with all kinds of Gordon Clark stuff that is now lost to history, but I'm willing to uh, <laughs> repeat things and, and, and be on more um, podcasts. So oh, yeah, yeah. Been on, well, there's one out there from a couple years ago when I was working on the project that Cody recorded, but uh, this will be the first one since the book came out. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we are, we are very privileged to, to have you on, man. We really appreciate this. Uh, 
And uh, and like Carlos said, uh, you've got an open invitation to to come back. I'll try to set some stuff up with you in the future. And uh, and folks, uh, with that, uh, just want to wish everybody a blessed week. So we'll check you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's T-R-A-C-T-Planet.com, coupon code BTWN.